Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. So uh, an old man goes to see uh, a film alone, and he sits in the same row as a young boy who has a golden retriever sitting next to him. And the film starts, but the man has a hard time paying attention to the movie. As the film progresses, his focus is increasingly diverted to the young boy and his dog. The dog is laughing uproariously during all the funny scenes. He's gasping and pointing during the shocking scenes. He's whooping and hollering during the actual scenes. Right? And he's gently sobbing during the dramatic scenes. By the end of the film, the man is utterly awestruck by this wondrous animal. As the film draws to a close and the credits begin to roll, the man uh, goes over to address the boy. That animal of yours is absolutely amazing. He laughed, he cried, he gasped, he cheered. He enjoyed the film on every level that could possibly be enjoyed. I am thoroughly surprised. And the boy says, I'm surprised too. He did not care for the book. This joke actually summarizes all of the themes that I want to bring out in this week. I want to talk about focus and awareness, and I want to talk about miraculous animals. Yes, we're going to talk about that. The old man is trying to focus on one thing, but he ends up turning aside to focus on another, and that is exactly what happens with our friend Moshe. Now, I know I opened with a joke, but here on out, since uh, I didn't get a good response, I'm just going to be totally serious. No more jokes in the rest of the sermon, okay? Yeah, because I'm a little hurt, uh, honestly. <laughs> but uh, what we're going to do is we're going to dig in to the Torah, and we're going to use a little bit of what's called Midrash, which is uh, it's uh, like a seeking out or uh, interpretive uh, and textual links. So it's when the rabbis make links or fill in the gaps or try to figure out what's going on behind the text or the other meanings of the text. So uh, we're going to go into, we're going to dig a little bit into the Torah. You, you want to do that with me this morning? Okay. All right. So this week's Parsha has an iconic scene where God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush while he is shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. The burning bush is one of the most well-known images from the Bible. And uh, this is the logo of the uh, Jewish Theological Seminary. I've used their resources and their website. And I think I've been to a seminar that they did. And uh, what is it? It's the burning bush. And notice there's a letter in there. What letter is that? Shin. That's a shin. For all you that are studying Hebrew, that's good. You get a Torah point. And uh, the shin, I think, stands for El Shaddai, right? The God that provides in the midst of this, speaks out of this burning bush. Um, and in fact, at the Jewish Theological Seminary Library, this logo appears on the door 
of the library and the text, and there's a Hebrew text that says, uh, and the bush was not consumed. So we know that it's not just any bush, right? It's the burning bush. It's referenced that, and it was not consumed. That's their logo. That's their, their motto on their library. Interesting. Why is that? The Jewish artist, Mark Chagall, who also painted and was drawn to the figure of Yeshua, and I've talked about that in other sermons, he painted this scene, and many artists have as well um, throughout history. So this is uh, Chagall's take. What do you notice uh, in this in this scene? Anything that jumps out at you? The name of God, right? Because in this scene, right, God reveals his name in a unique way. I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. It, ha- it happens in this encounter. What else do we notice? What's there in the, in the background? You have an angel, right? That's a, Mark Chagall did that, you know, but also on the right there, what do you see? Little sheep, right? Remember he was, he was guiding his sheep there. That's how he ended up there, right? And we're going to come back to that as well. So it's just an interesting to kind of to see this because it's uh, it's iconic, right? Many artists have painted it over the years. It was a, uh, a history-altering encounter, we could say, right? Because God met this lowly shepherd. He was running away from having murdered someone and, and being found out, and he ran away and spent 40 years just taking care of sheep, right? And uh, And also, you know, building a family. And from this point on, he became the rescuer, of the Jewish nation. He became the transmitter of the Torah and the intercessor for the people. It was very, it was a defining and transformative moment. So why is this image and this encounter so important in scripture and in Judaism and in Messianic Judaism? Well, let's take a look at the, this section of this week's Torah portion where it happens. This is the first three verses of Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So he led the flock to the farthest end of the wilderness, coming to the mountain of God, Horeb. Then the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. So he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Hmm. That's the the motto in the in for the for the seminary. Jo- Moses thought. I will go now and see this great sight. Why is the bush not burnt? The first thing we notice in the first in the top there is that Moses took his father-in-law's flock where? Into the wilderness, into the desert. Why does the Torah mention this detail? Well, perhaps it was just, you know, he he was taking them where they were, they were supposed to go, right? It's just a, but the Torah isn't accidental. The Torah gives us details for a reason. And um, perhaps it was because we will see him do this again, because there's another flock. Who is Moses' other flock of sheep? Israel. And where does he take them? He takes them into the wilderness, right? And uh, where, where in the wilderness does he take them? to this very mountain. So God is preparing him. He's giving him a practice run, right? But it's with these sheep. And I believe this shows us how God prepares us. He prepares us for our calling. He lets us ride a tricycle, right? And then he lets us ride a bicycle with training wheels, right? And then uh, he lets us ride the bike without the training wheels before 
you know, it's, it's a, it's a progression. He gives us temporary assignments to, to train us up, to teach us. Before I taught Torah as a rabbi, what was I doing? I was working in an elementary school, right? (laughs) As a, as a Spanish teacher. And believe it or not, there was a lot I could draw from that in my experience. Um, You know, one of the, one of the folks that I was dealing with uh, paid a lot better attention to me than the other one. I'll let you figure out which one was uh, more apt to, uh, to listen, but it's you guys. I'm just kidding. Yeah. But uh, (laughs) yeah, but you know, but a lot of those skills (laughs) from, you know, teaching, teaching young children, even, even that it, it, it translates right. And about teaching about uh, how to speak, how to, uh, tell stories and, and do interactive things and, 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 uh, to impart things. It's just, I'm teaching the Torah as opposed to Spanish. And, uh, when I, I didn't start out as a rabbi here, I had, uh, the opportunity to, st- to start, you know, practicing my sermons, um, and, uh, and going with, uh, our former rabbi, Rabbi David Rudolph, uh, when I was on break in the summer, I would go with him to do, to visit people that were sick. Right. And so I got to, I was kind of like an apprenticeship. So the Lord gives us opportunities to do things. And I think that's what is happening here. That Moses is taking the sheep into the wilderness because God is, is preparing him. Moses, Moses learned a lot as a literal shepherd in caring for this uh, flock of people. He got to practice with some actual sheep going to the actual same place that the Israelites would receive the Torah. And if you get used to this, right, what, what were the sheep doing? They were like, bah, bah. what was God getting him used to? The people doing the same thing. Rah, rah. They were kvetching and complaining in the wilderness. That's what the Torah says, right? So how do you get used to that? You get used to it with the sheep. So God was preparing him and God prepares us. Now, when we see the wilderness midbar in scripture, we think trials, we think hunger, we think thirst, right? Which is true. But the reality is God meets with Israel in the wilderness. God meets with us in the wilderness. It's amazing. We don't always like it, but that's how it works. Moses drives the sheep to the desert and Israel is driven into the desert. Why? Because they're fleeing from being enslaved. But that's where they encounter Hashem. That's where we received the Torah. In in the desert is the burning bush on the mountain of God, the same mountain where we received the Ten Commandments after coming out of the slavery of Egypt. So we see the sovereignty of God over places and over times to bring about salvation. God inspired Moses to bring him to this appointed place right? To prepare him, even though it was the land of exile. The first time we see wilderness is when? in After the Garden of Eden, we're exiled to the wilderness east of Eden, right? But God can still meet with us there, right? He's, he's not limited to a, a particular space, right? He's not uh, the God of the hills, but not the God of the valleys. He's the God of, of, of all, all the earth, right? So, does this idea resonate with us? Do we encounter God more in the uncomfortable places, right? Do we recognize that we need his help and we grow more into maturity when we're in the desert, when we're in the wilderness? Guess what? Sometimes he brings us right there and then reveals himself 
through a burning bush moment or something like that. In the beginning of this week's Torah portion, there's another uh, textual connection to the same idea. This is from Exodus 1, verse 12. Let's read it together. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. So the Egyptians dreaded the presence of B'nai Israel. Isn't that interesting, right? The more affliction that they were on, the more that they were fruitful and multiplied, which is the very basic you know, charge of humanity that God gave to Adam right? Be fruitful and multiply. And he was get, he gave that to Israel to be fruitful, not only to make more people, but to bring the knowledge of God, the love of God to the whole earth. And that's what was happening despite, or even maybe because of this affliction. Paradoxically, there is fruit in the desert. There is prosperity in affliction, but only, only because God is sovereign over time and space. I've spoken before about how challenging my time was in Mississippi, teaching high school Spanish. And uh, there was a Bible study I went to, and we would encourage one another. And there was this kind of saying, and we said it, we said it often, if you don't know the Lord before you started teaching here, you certainly got to know him and lean on him in the process, right? It made, <laughs> it made believers out of all of us, right? And it drew us all to the Lord because it was, it was tough, right? Now, let's think about the fact that the bush doesn't burn up, right? Did you notice that? That's, that's the miracle. What do the rabbis make of this image? Well, the Italian rabbi Soforno says it's like the Egyptians who do not perish from the many plagues they have to endure. You ever notice that? Soforno notes that the normal reaction to burning, what happens when you burn something? It's consumed, right? It, it burns up right? We just burned up some Shabbat candles, right? And it's, and then by the end of the night, they're gone. Fire often represents the holy and powerful presence of God, which normally consumes that which it touches, right? Unless the Lord enables it because he's strong enough and loving enough to do that. Fire also represents adversity, difficulty in the Torah, the fiery furnace, but what comes if you put a precious metal in the fiery furnace, what happens? It's purified, right? And that's not an analogy that I made up. That's from the scriptures. Think of Daniel's three friends. What happened when they were put in the fiery furnace? They were not consumed, right? Just like the burning bush was not consumed. Or here's a passage from Isaiah 43. But now, thus says Adonai, the one who created you, O Jacob, the one who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Or through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor will the flame burn you. For I am Adonai, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. So the Egyptians are the burning bush because they're not consumed by the plagues. Israel is the burning bush because it is not consumed. The Jewish people live on Israel high. We are the burning bush because we are not consumed up when we go through the fire. We go through troubles, but God keeps us. He preserves us. So we're not consumed by it. Our God is an all-consuming fire, but we're not consumed by his brightness and holiness. Why? Because he also gives mercy. He gives grace. He gives rescuing. 
Scripture also connects the fiery furnace with the trials of Egypt. God comforts Israel in Deuteronomy 4.20. It says this, But you, Adonai has taken, he's brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people for his own inheritance, as you are this day. So the enslavement is, is, a, is a fiery furnace, right? And the, the burning bush is, is a fiery furnace, but it's not the bush is not consumed. Israel is not consumed. The Egyptians are not consumed. We are not consumed. We're not, we're not burnt up, right? We might be burnt out, but we're not burnt up, right? Because God is faithful. Many rabbis and scholars believe the bush itself is, which is an obscure Hebrew word in the Torah, is a, a thorn bush. And along the same lines, the medieval rabbinic uh, commentator Rashi affirms that it's a, a thorn bush. He says that's what it is. And he connects the passage to Psalm 91.15. It says, very simply, I will be with him in trouble. I will be with him in trouble, Right. So the Lord is, is there in the fiery furnace. He's there. He speaks out of the bush, right? The, the king looked into the fiery furnace with Daniel's three friends, and he saw another one who looked like one of the gods. That's the only way he could understand it, right? But it was the Lord was with them in that place. If you're in that kind of season, I want you to know God is with you. As we sang this morning, he is for you. He is with you, he is for you, and you will not be consumed by the fire because he is faithful. So let's dig into Moses's actions here a little bit. The Torah says, so he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Moses thought, I will go now and see this great sight. Why is the bush not burnt? This is not the miracle on the level of, uh, let's say, a dog reacting to a movie, right? It's a subtle, subtle miracle. Uh, it's a subtle sign. So it requires a person to really stop and notice, to be aware, to be deliberate, to be intentional. Moses could have said to himself, huh, a burning bush in the desert. That's weird. Right? That's probably what I would have done. <laughs> like, huh, that's weird. But he stayed. And the miracle that he noticed was it wasn't burning up, which requires patience and requires intentionality. It's interesting that this character, this character trait of Moses really comes out. And I think that's what we can, uh, we can admire and perhaps emulate. There's uh, an intentionality here. There's an awareness. There's a deliberate choice. Let me turn aside from what I'm doing and choose to focus on this other thing, right? We're concerned about one thing, and God is directing us, perhaps, to focus on something else. He's got a lot of sheep there, right? I'm sure they're bad, bad, right? That could, that could draw his focus away, right? But he senses that the Lord brought him there for a purpose, and he senses that the Lord is directing his focus somewhere else. So sometimes we have to do that. How many of us are willing to shift our focus? We're concerned about one thing, and God is directing us somewhere else. Maybe we're thinking about a situation the wrong way, right? As I said, as I shared this earlier this morning, right? There's a kind of a, a merit mentality that we have, an earning mentality, deserving mentality. Maybe that's not what God wants us to focus on because that's not how the scripture works. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions, right? 
we, we ask God questions all the time, right? Why is this and why is that? Maybe he wants to redirect us. Maybe uh, we're thinking about a situation the wrong way, right? We're seeing it from this angle and he wants us to look from a different angle. Oftentimes we can, of course, pray, but processing with a friend or a counselor enables us to, to refocus because they can offer an insight. You know, they're outside of the problem that might be able to help us that God can work in and through our, our community. With Moses at the burning bush, awareness, intention, and shift of focus, what does it lead to? Leads to understanding and revelation because he learns a new name for the God of Israel. I am that I am. That's the result of this. Part of maturing is moving away from the animal nature. What's surprising about the story in the beginning is that the dog acts like a person, right? Remember my joke that you all loved, right? But what happens in our immaturity? We act like the animals. We react to situations without processing. As humans, we are to rule over the animal nature, right? But uh, so we can be intentional and aware of our emotions and thoughts. So do we question our negative hurtful thoughts? And are we perpetuating lies? Do we need to maybe refocus? Um, I told my wife the other day that I had been thinking about her all day. She said, oh, that's, that's so sweet. Why is that? I said, you know, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Okay, it's another joke. I, Sorry. And I didn't really say that to my wife. Of course... Uh, guys, if you want to use that with your lady friends, um, let me know how it goes. And then maybe I'll try it with Sonia. Um, okay. Where was I? <laughs> but anyways, there's a point to this scripture, right? To think about, uh, the things that are good, things that are lovely, right? Oh, how is our thought life? Um, we're supposed to be intentional and aware of our thought life, but you can't be intentional if you don't know, if you're not aware. And so Moses is kind of practicing this awareness. He's practicing this intentionality. Let me be deliberate. Let me shift my focus. So we have to do that, I think. We have to be aware of what we're thinking. We can say, hold on a minute. Let me turn aside and examine this emotion. Or let me turn aside and examine this thought. Uh, emotions are often cues or letters. If you're feeling sad, it's often a message right? A message that there's a loss of some kind. Anger is a message that you had a different expectation or something is wrong and, and you need to fix it. And it's a cue for forgiveness. A mature way to handle these emotions would be to first be aware that they are there, that they exist, and then process with the Lord as to the why. That way we can feel the emotion, but not react in sin and respond with understanding. I think this is the meaning of the, the uh, verse in Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry, but do not sin, right? How do you do that? You recognize and respond to the anger maturely as a message, but you don't let it. You don't let the emotion fuel how you're going to react, right? But because we have to rule over the animal nature. Moses turning aside for this, and, and seeing God in the small, subtle miracle has a, a lesson for us as well. 
so another question I had was, uh, why a bush? Why is it, uh, you know, why that, right? It could have been a nice tall sycamore tree or, you know, the trees of Lebanon, you know, those are mighty and majestic. Um, the humble plant, the bush doesn't, you know, doesn't seem that great. In uh, the Monty Python movie where they're searching for the Holy Grail, what do the heroes have to bring the knights who say knee? A shrubbery. That's right. Right? It's it's clearly not the most majestic of objects for the Lord to speak from. But maybe this is the point. Right? Maybe this is the point, which we alluded to earlier. The bush is humble. It's burning, but it's not burning up. It's a subtle sign. It's not a hit you over the head with a frying pan sign. It's subtle, it's lowly, right? And it requires a lowly, humble person who's aware to see it, right? And so maybe we should all be. In other words, sometimes we have to be intentional about seeing and hearing from God because it's not always a whirlwind. It's not always a thundering voice, right? It's not always this dramatic uh, thing. Indeed, this is the lesson for Elijah, Remember when he's uh, fleeing from his life, from uh, for his life, uh, from the evil king and queen, and he hides in a cave, and this is his encounter with the Lord. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after this fire, a still small voice, right? It's the small things sometimes. It's the subtle things. It's the subtle small miracles that we're supposed to see God, to look for God. We might want a flashy display. And look, God can do great things. God can do flashy miracles as well. But often he wants us to see him in the more everyday miracles because the creation God's creation is full of these everyday miracles, these subtle ways that we can see God. And what is a miracle anyways? Well, I believe it's something that can't be explained except by God doing it, right? We can't explain it. And if we're going by that definition, perhaps there's more miraculous than we might first suspect. In the story, uh, Charlotte's Web, there's a spider who starts spinning words into her web to save a pig so that he won't be slaughtered. And one of them is, you know, she's, she spins the word some pig and the people find it and they're, they're amazed. How, how could this spider, you know, <laughs> um, weave a, a web with, with human English words. This is a miracle. This is amazing. Uh, and the apparent miracle of a spider spinning webs words in her web, it leaves some skeptics, right? Obviously there's some people that are like, skeptical. For example, Mrs. Uh, Arabel. So she has this exchange, Mrs. Arabel and uh, the kind Dr. Dorian are talking, and this is what they say. Do you understand how there could be any writing in a spider's web? Oh no, said Dr. Dorian. I don't understand it. But for that matter, I don't understand how a spider learned to spin a web in the first place. When the words appeared, everyone said they were a miracle, but nobody pointed out that the web itself is a miracle. What's miraculous about a spider's web, said Mrs. Arable. I don't see why you say a web is a miracle. It's just a web. Ever try to spin one? In other words, who taught the spider to spin the web? They just do it. Who taught the birds 
Have you ever noticed they change direction in midair all at the same time? I'm sure there's a scientific explanation for that, but it's it's amazing, right? Right? Who taught them to do that? If you found a new car in the middle of the desert, would you assume that it came together randomly by chance? Right? By no means, as Paul would say. So how do you explain the infinite complexity of even one of our cells? One, just one cell. And then let alone an entire organ like the heart or you know, entire circulatory system or uh, an entire human like you with complexity upon complexity, right? Systems working together, emotions, the breath of life, self-awareness, right? How do you explain that? How do you explain that you're a person, right? Have you ever thought about that? You're a person with consciousness and you can think about your own existence. Science can't explain that. So therefore, you are a miracle. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you are a miracle. Moses turning aside to see the miracle of a bush not burning up gives us direction to be more observant, to see God working in the everyday. And when we do, to give him glory. What can we give glory to God for? Let's think about it. Let's take a moment. Look around you. Look around you in the sanctuary. If you're at home watching on, on, on Zoom, if you're listening later in the podcast, just look around you. Find something that God did. Find something that God did. Maybe something that you normally overlook and say, glory to God. Can we do that? All right. And give him thanks and acknowledge him because we're surrounded by the miraculous. So I want to encourage all of us, myself included, to trust God in the wilderness, to see God in the burning bush. Let's look for his faithfulness. Let's look for the quote unquote small miracles that we can be thankful for. Let's allow God to refocus our thoughts and emotions and let's grow in awareness and intentionality so that we can see him, so that we can hear him so that we can know his name. His name and identity can be revealed to us just like it was to Moses. We saw in the Chagall painting, the name of God above the burning bush. The result for Moses from being intentional, aware, and refocused was to hear and understand the name of God. I am who I am, or it could be, I will be what I will be. That's all we need. He's got it. <laughs> He's got it taken care of. My hope is that we will grow in understanding and revelation of God's name, his character and goodness by following in the steps of Moses. Avinu, our father, thank you that you um, reveal yourself to us and that you give us opportunities to see you in the everyday and uh, you help us to grow in maturity so that we're not reacting like animals, but we're intentional, that we're deliberate, that we understand our thoughts and our emotions and bring them captive and, and think about things that are um, that are good and lovely and from your perspective, Lord. And we, um, we give up the rights to our own focus and our own process. We ask you to be the Lord over our focus. Show us what you want us to be focused on. Show us what you want us to be looking at and concerned about. Um, so that uh, we can see you more and uh, so that we can learn from the lessons uh, that you taught our, our father Moses. In Yeshua's name we pray.
Amen.